Welcome to episode number 27 entitled Decentering Whiteness with Dr. Ron Ruthruff. Um, oh my gosh, you guys. Jeez, I don't even know where to start with this one. Um, he, Ron, uh, there's a lot of moments in this, in this podcast where he, my only response is just like, shit, man. Because <laughs> uh, I and I've listened back through it uh, maybe two or three times now, and I just um, I'm taking notes. I have like <laughs> it's it's just incredibly challenging. Uh, Ron dis- describes whiteness as uh, possession, mastery, and control. Uh, Doctor uh, Ron Ruthruff also ha- has served uh, homeless and street involved youth and their families for the past thirty years. Uh, he's someone I deeply admire. Uh, current uh, professor at um, Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. Uh, Ron's also an author of two books, um, both of which I've read, uh, Closer to the Edge, Walking with Jesus for the World's Sake, and The Least of These, Lessons Learned from Kids on the Streets. Both are available on Amazon and elsewhere. Um, Gosh, one of the things I think probably that helps frame the conversation the best is Ron just simply asked the question, why do white men, white, white people feel like they're always in charge? And that, that is a question I think that frames and haunts me uh, still this day as Ron and I um, talk through a really complicated but super important topic of decentering whiteness. Uh, one final note, this is just part one of the conversation because it does not elude me of the potential problems of uh, and that are inherent to two white people talking about decentering whiteness, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and, and our attempt to somehow master it, which only uh, furthers the problem. So, um, I I want you to know that uh, this is only part one. I have uh, at least a part two lined up and scheduled, uh, and I'm so excited to talk with Eric about that. Um, but I'm hoping to have an ongoing conversation about this as well, uh, with not just white people. So, <laughs> and I don't think my podcast reflects this anyway as a whole, but I wanted you to know that there's more to come. So enjoy, uh, episode number 27. Okay. Hi, Ron. Um, hey, how you doing? Good. I'm glad you're able to um, join me. I, I've been looking forward to this quite a bit, and it really means a lot. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, fun to see your face. Even yeah, though, you too. Of course, it's a podcast, but uh, it's fun to see your face, and it's fun to be with you in this uh, frame. We've had a lot of conversations in places of employment. Yeah. It feels like this is a little bit freer environment for us to say what, maybe not what needs to be said, but at least what we want to say. Yeah, I'll totally <laughs> get that. Great, great. <laughs> um, so I, I, I thought it'd be a great way to kick off the conversation is um, I watched on YouTube, you share a story that I thought was pretty, pretty remarkable. And uh, I, I wouldn't mind if you wouldn't mind retelling kind of what, what happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, uh, that, ended up, uh, <clears throat> that ended up being a very cool little five minute a bit that the school that I work for, the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology, uh, filmed and recorded. So 
And when I say cool, I mean, I looked way cooler in it than I really am. So thank you, Seattle School of Theology, for uh, making me look far hipper than a 59-year-old man is supposed to look. Um, but uh, very, very simply, uh, let me give you a little bit of the backstory. Um, I have a dear friend, and I say she's my pastor because nobody else will claim me, uh, Lena Thompson, um, who is the pastor of Lake Burien Presbyterian Church. And they've done some really, really innovative and creative work on, uh, well, cultivating an anti-racist uh, posture in their church and educating uh, folks in the community about historical racism and how it's impacted the way that we relate to each other. And so her church literally uh, took a group of people to the South and walked through the monuments and sort of retraced the steps of slavery Jim Crow and the Great Migration uh, to the North, uh, which led to more Jim Crow type laws in the textile industry and also led to the prison industrial complex. So she, they recreated that experience in a museum in their church. Wow. It was phenomenal. Hmm. It was the most profound thing. I mean, you know, I don't even have a phone that does this, but you get your little Q code or whatever that thing is. Yeah. And you, you, you put your headphones on, you walk through this museum and their whole church was set up to wow. honor the, uh, the history and the courageous history of black people and the resiliency um, to sort of survive uh, slavery, Jim Crow, the prison industrial complex. And so all of that to say, I, I was struck when I walked through that museum uh, that that church had given to the community as a gift or they were going to do it for a month and then it ended up being like a six month deal, right? Because so many people wanted to walk through it. Yeah. I was so struck by that. And what I was struck by mostly was my ignorance and my naive assumption. How, how can this happen over and over and over again? How can we have mm -hmm. 250 years of slavery and then have reconstructionism that is met with Jim Crow laws and lynchings of 4,000 people while the church, you know, church stood and witnessed it and was for the most part silent. And yeah. then, well, even, and then, even more so too, like the church would, would lynch a, a, a dark-skinned man on Saturday and then worship a lynched dark-skinned man on Sunday, right? And, and to yeah. not connect the dots is baffling. Yeah, and so so all of that to say, as I walked out of there, I, I continued to ask myself, what are the mechanisms of what I later call autocorrect? And I don't mean correct in a correct way, but how does this how does this systemic tide continue to move back towards this very problematic social context where um, white people are preferred or centered, and people of color. Are, are left uh, on the margins. And so all of that to say, I think I was uh, in, in many ways sort of shaken by how, how disorienting and confusing it was for me. But being a professor that feels like I understand a tad bit about some of these issues in regards to biblical ethics and social justice, just confused by the, whatever that mechanism was. Yeah. And uh, so that night, uh, it's a beautiful fall night. Linda and I decide, that is pre-COVID, right? Linda and I decide that we're going to take the train downtown because it's a wonderful thing to do. So we jump on the train from our neighborhood 
Uh, we go downtown to um, Big Plug for the Pink Door, my favorite restaurant in the city. So uh, we eat this amazing dinner at the Pink Door and um, had a great conversation about that experience um, for us and what that experience actually should and inform us and how amazing we were that we were both shocked by that experience uh, because of the neighborhood that we live in. We live in the 98118 zip code. Uh, and so that has been a great teacher for us all along the way, the 35 years that we've lived here. And so still as white people, just feeling ignorant, you know? Yeah. And uh, so we, uh, it's a beautiful night in October. And so we decide let's walk uh, back uh, through downtown and through Pioneer Square and just jump on the train down to Pioneer Square because the night is glorious, right? It's a, it's the classic Seattle uh, kind of early fall evening. So we walk through and it's somewhat romantic. Um, well, because she's with me. So of course it's romantic. So we're walking down the street and uh, we're walking down the street and, and I, I see these two men that are, I thought they were working on like a, a, a manhole or some sort of plumbing thing because they were very aggressively working in the street, both wearing construction gear, like they were part of some sort of you know, construction company, because they both had on the same hat, the same shirt. And when I got closer, I realized they weren't working on anything. They were actually beating someone up. And of course, you're like, you double take, right? Like, did I really see what I thought I saw? Yeah. And what happened was, um, in the midst of that, I ran towards them and asked them very politely in, you know, my good Ron Ruthruff voice, uh, please stop doing that. I don't think I said please. And there could have been a couple of aggressive F-bombs in the conversation, but basically asked them to stop. Yeah. And uh, as I got closer, um, Linda, uh, who never carries her phone with her, my partner, had her phone and I said, call 911. And I yelled at these guys to get away and they stood up and deeply shamed, obviously, began to kind of make excuses for what they were doing to this man in the street who was little like we're talking like mm. i'm a pretty big guy probably weigh 198 pounds on a good day both these construction workers are these big barrel chested men larger than me and mm. this man on the street was probably all of 140 pounds and they were both beating the shit out of him excuse yeah. me but oh, there's fine. no other way to describe it it was terrifying yeah and so as i as they said you know he was talking smack to my girlfriend and I was just like I don't care what was going on you're beating up this man Jeez. you know so Linda calls the police when they recognize the police are being called they run away what was more disturbing was after this as we stood there the man was bleeding his head was injured um, I uh, took a, I had a handkerchief in my back pocket pulled it out put it on the man um, told him just to sit there because I didn't know if he had a head injury. I really didn't know what was going on with him. He seemed pretty disoriented um, as if he had a head injury or maybe because I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, maybe he had some mental health issues, but he seemed very confused. So I was trying to talk him into just staying, sitting down. The police show up, the aid car shows up, they start to talk to the man and they tell me to move on. Mm. And I was like, wait, 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 what do you mean move on? This man was just assaulted. I can describe it to you guys. They just ran down the street. Yeah. And they literally told us, thank you so much for your help. They didn't actually, I, no, you know what? They didn't say thank you. They just said, we've got this. Don't worry about it. 
And afterwards, what I recognized was as a black man that was homeless and poor in the street, for some reason, this didn't even warrant a police report. Wow. The aid car uh, patched him up a little bit, asked him if he could walk. He said he could. They let him walk down the street. The police car left and everything went back to normal. And all of a sudden, I realized that same sort of mechanism of autocorrect is what it's called in the little video piece Yeah, that I recognized in that museum and that exhibit was working itself out in real time. Like there was an assault that took place, but because he was a black body, for some reason, it didn't warrant any of the things that we would expect from law enforcement or from, you know, the aid car or the mental health, like, like nothing, mm-hmm. nothing happened. Yeah. And I think my, um, my shock by that spoke to as much about my position in the world um, as, it, as, it, as, as it speaks to the actual event, right? Like the surprise that I had that, wait, I thought, I thought police protected and served you. I thought they mm-hmm. took account of assaults. And so, yeah, none of it happened. So, that was the incident. Um, the video uh, that was done by the school uh, makes me look uh, a little bit cooler and a little bit more courageous than I really am. It was really just an impulse yeah. that, um, that, and I grew up in a neighborhood where I was a, a little guy in a pretty poor neighborhood and had, I was raised by uh, my mother by herself. And she taught me from a very young age that you just don't let people be a bully. Yeah. And so somewhere in that upbringing, RIP mom, um, uh, she taught me something that felt like it was activated in that moment where I couldn't, I couldn't stand there and watch two people beat up a man in the street. But it, it illustrates a larger idea, right? That is haunting, that, that if that was a wealthy or, or middle-class white cis man, that, that um, things would have been very different. Or the outcome would have been, and there's, and as you said, like, and I, I, I love the your quote, the quote I pulled from it was an insidious, insidious autocorrect, right? That that there's this sense that that there are disposable people, which that in alone should be uh, an excellent, um, a mutually exclusive ideas, right? Disposable person, but, but um, that those that that does that is the reality, and yet there is this idea that we autocorrect and, and define what is normal. And if it's not normal, then it's disposable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or if it's, or if it in some way doesn't warrant being saved, if it's not mm. salvageable. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's a bit where, where I put it. Yeah. That, that sort of idea of, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a theological frame that Luke gives us in the good Samaritan where the text actually says he was half dead or he was nearly dead. I can't remember exactly. Okay. And, and yeah. I find that to be a really interesting dynamic in all this. Like, is that person worth saving? Wow. And, and the, 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 the problematic self-fulfilling prophecies in that are endless, right? Like, this doesn't, isn't just about police. This is about public school systems. This is about who deserves medical care. Mm-hmm. This is about is this a worthy business to invest in in this neighborhood? And, mm-hmm. and, and my argument is there's a whole history of race that creates 
blind spots and constructs constructed from a racial paradigm that create these constructs that um, allow us in split seconds to make these decisions that are, uh, that are problematic in the outcome and are not actually correct at all, but they sort of realign the system to work the way it was designed to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and as, a, as a, a white man, I've, like I, it's, it's weird how, I don't know if you've had experience, but I, I feel like I, there's been a few blind spots that have been revealed to me over the last few years. Uh, I mean, one of the first and most prominent was probably um, the LGBTQ plus community and, um, and the affirmation of those, those people. Uh, in the in the context of how I view my spirituality, um, and then moving on to just the massive amount of blind spots that I have about um, about race and and then even how that shaped my theology. Like I, I woke up to the idea that like ninety nine percent of my way I conceive God was was taught to me by white, usually upper class, often lawyers and and men. Right. <laughs> that, that, like yeah, whether it's yeah. every every book I've read, every podcast I listen to, um, you know, uh, every sermon, every leader. Uh, and then yet I, I look at the um, the crowd and the and the listeners of Jesus's teachings and, and they were not <laughs> uh, that, that demographic. Right. And so that, that's got to produce some substantial blind spots just in the way of me understanding God and my theology and then once you, I notice, once you notice one blind spot, you're just left, at least I left, was left with this feeling of like, holy shit, what else am I missing? Because now it's like so painfully obvious. And it, there's a real humility that washes over, right? Of like, yeah, oh yeah, my God, yeah. that was, how did I miss that one? Well, most of the, you know, theological formulation of the church happened in Europe. But the Bible was actually worked out in yeah. a very diverse, ancient, you know, Middle East. And so that, that sort of dynamic of where those theological, where that theological formulation took place and who had a right to speak into how it was shaped um, has some very, very interesting parallels to even where we get this term white or Caucasian yeah. from. I mean, just the very dynamic of, of me um, checking a box that says I'm Caucasian. I, I, you know, never been to the Caucasus Mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what Caucasus food is. Um, I don't know how to dress in traditional Caucasus clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know any Caucasus dancing, but yet I'm, I'm identified as Caucasian. And so that in itself should cause some of us to be a little bit suspect that we've got this label mm-hmm. that has very little geographical significance or ethnic significance to any of us, but yet it's begun to not only label us, but label who we want to be in that group and who we don't want to be in that group. And that's just- And, it's, and since it's not tied to any land or any specific culture, it ends up co-opting all land and, and, and culture potentially. Right. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I, I mean, I'm a professor, so you you never ask a question that you can't answer, right? No questions. 
no questions or anything but rhetorical. Actually, hopefully that's not true. Hopefully I create <laughs> learning communities in which I don't have a lot of the answers to the questions that I'm asking. But, you know, Nell Painter is the one that does this great work called uh, The History of White People. And as a historian, Nell Painter goes back and really, uh, she begins to unwrap where this, uh, where this Johann Blumenbach character um, became a self-described expert in anthropology and identified the Caucasian skull as the most beautiful. And um, some have even argued that had larger brain capacity. And so this skull was attributed to the Caucasian race, meaning that uh, you know all definitions of beauty and capacities for intelligence were sort of labeled as um, held by the Caucasus skull. Mm. And so that, to go back that far and to begin to realize that this is an insidious dynamic, right? If we want mm -hmm. to use the word insidious again, uh, insidious dynamic that started with our very anthropological categories. When you talk about anthropology, anthropological categories, you talk about civilizations, you talk about barbarians, and you talk about savages. Those are, those are problematic constructs when we start talking about relating to mm. people across difference. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, my argument is that's, that's where some of this misnaming ourselves and misnaming others, that misnaming started with Frederick Blumenbach. In fact, what uh, you speak to this, and I just want to read a quote from uh, her book because it's so great. She says, somehow in Blumenbach's discovery, right? Specific, a geographical located people faded, while the idea of a supremely beautiful Caucasian lived on, eventually becoming the scientific term of choice for all white people. White scholars nowadays use Caucasian. They're harking back to this illustrious Blumenbach, this misnamed lack of any sort of scientific data that was just a prescribed identity that we adopted as greater than. Mm -hmm. greater yeah, than. and if it's and that's the slippery slope, right? Because if we can def, if we get to define what's normal or abnormal, then we get to then go a step further and de decide what's superior or inferior. And if it's inferior, we can dismiss it. If, if we can dismiss it, then we can vilify it. If we can vilify it, we can dehumanize it. If we can dehumanize it, we can hurt it. Right. And that's exactly. the, that's the rhythm. I mean, I, I was listening to reclaiming my theology podcast and she gave like a really innocent example, but it, it, it illustrates the larger problem of like, you know, being in the, you know, back when we used to go to the office to work, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and someone is lunch hour and everyone's microwaving their food and a white person gets to um, point out how, a particular ethnicity of food is is smells bad, right? Uh, and because in their minds it's inferior because it doesn't smell the, the way it normally should, right? Quote unquote normal. And there's that, and then that whole process, and it can be dismissed, and it can be, you know. So you, there's this whole microaggression that can occur, but on the macro, more um, you know, governmental or or um, cultural aspects of this, that we see this same pattern play out of that that same slippery slope from defining what's normal than to defining what's inferior and down the list it goes. How we define who Americans are. 
Yeah. We have we have African Americans, we have Asian Americans, mm. we have um we have Mexican Americans, and we have all these sort of uh uh disclaimers or sort of caveats uh to sort of describe how they ended up becoming an American and what kind of an but there's no I don't introduce myself as a white American. Mm. I don't introduce myself as an Irish American. Yeah, I, get, I get to just be the American. Yeah. I just get to be the American, and everything else huh. is defined or measured according to sort of that uh, that barometer of what American is. The, and another interesting place this plays out in words is uh, in my son's middle school. Now my boys are are both grown now and both educators in the school system that they came from, which is a miracle in and of itself. But uh, they went to Aki Kurosi Middle School Academy. Uh, Aki Kurosi was considered a really lousy junior high school. We met a principal that we loved there and felt like it was a good place uh, for us to cast our lot with this woman who um, was just a dynamic and good leader. And we felt like our boys could learn a lot at that school. It was hard and it was good. It was complicated. And they referred to Aki Kurosi as 97% minority. Hmm. Interesting. How do you expect kids to pass the math portion of the WASL, the Washington State, you know, math exams, when we're telling them that 97% were minority? In fact, Ben and Clayton were 3% of the majority. 3%. No. <laughs> now, that, that sort of majority-minority language is yeah. very... It's been it's indicative of sort of how we treat the world that we live in. Yeah. So with me, this goes wow. back to paying attention to history and where we come from, because I would argue unless we do our history lessons well, and unless we begin to articulate what really happened in the past, mm. there's no way to really determine or define why we relate to each other in the way that we do. Mm-hmm. So. So I know there's a lot of. Um, so you're saying if 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 I don't understand where those blind spots originated, I'll never even come. I'll never have the opportunity or even suspect that I have blind spots to begin with. Right, because all of that history begins to shape how we relate to each other. I mean, it's a simple. And Kyle, we were talking about this before we got on the air. Your family system, and so we're just talking about your kids and how old your kids are, and I think that's awesome. That I, yeah, I didn't know your kids were that old. Um, but families are a really good example of this. How many of us walk into a relationship with our partner and have no idea why we do things the way we do them, but it causes deep tension in our family systems, right? With our partner, uh, Linda and I have been married for 35 years. Uh, we've worked through a couple of things, but it's interesting how our family systems still show up in the way that we relate to each other. Mm. We never once before we were married said, oh, let me tell you a little bit about how I've thought about how I was raised and how it impacts how I relate to the world. Now, those things just come up. And I would say that we have a collective history in America that unless we're really, uh, willing to unwrap what actually happened and how you know people like Frederick Blumenbach began to give us misinformation that led to these disparities in how we relate to each other 
we'll, we'll never really understand why our relating now is so impacted. Um, it, it, Henry Nouwen says this. Henry Nouwen says, forgetting the past is like forgetting your most intimate teacher. Mm. And my argument is that um, in America, we have truly forget forgotten our past. Critical race theory is nothing more than explaining to people that George Washington did not have wooden teeth. George Washington was deeply subconscious about his appearance and had multiple sets of teeth given to him that would make him look better. Maybe this is why white men can't wear masks in America right now, because they've always thought their, their mouth was their best feature and they're afraid to cover it up. But the point is George Washington extracted the teeth from live slaves that went to manufacture his dentures. According to um, our history books, we were always told they were wood. Yeah. My question is why? Mm. Why was the, the actual accurate information withheld from me for a narrative that seems more nostalgic? Yeah. So I think we have to take a look at our history and begin to pay attention to some people that are writing some things. People like Ibram Kendi, people like Ron Tukaki, people like Nell Painter, um, and people like uh, a, a, a colleague of mine that I've really enjoyed his work, Willie Jennings. If you're, if you're a person of faith, Willie Jennings writes a book called The Christian Imagination that is one of the most theologically and sociologically, sociologically packed documents I've ever read. Read. I mean, he wow. he he makes N.T. Wright look like a you know a lightweight theologically. <laughs> and sorry, N.T. Wright or Tom, as your friends call know you as. Um, <laughs> but uh, if Tom writes something that I can read, he writes it as Tom Wright. If Tom writes something that I don't, that I'm going to have to dig a little deeper in, he writes it as N.T. Wright. But <laughs> Willie Jennings writes a book called The Christian Imagination that really goes to the core of how our Christianity and our nationalism and the mm. ideas around exceptionalism and the myths around manifest destiny, how those things actually have worked in concert to create not necessarily a Christianity, but have created an idea um, of maleness, of white maleness yeah. that is really, really problematic as we, uh, as we try to unwrap some of these issues. Yeah. Well, and you see how they're all tied together, the American exceptionalism and, and uh, uh, Christian ex exceptionalism are, are, are uh, an oftentimes one in the same yeah. in America right now. Yeah. Yeah. I can um, do all things through Christ who strengthens me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now let's pay attention. Paul says that in prison, right? In mm. Philippians, he's probably dead two, three weeks, two, three months after that. Yeah. He's laying in a Roman prison, writing his last correspondence to a church he loves on the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And he can't even get his own ass out of jail. But he says, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. So the context of that becomes, I think, uh, I, I want to unwrap that a little bit. But does Paul mean that he's exceptional, that he can do all things, or that he can endure all things because of the deep hope that he has inside of him? I would argue that it's the latter and not the former, that he actually can't do all things because he... He, it's his last correspondence and we don't know what happened to him after that.
Well, it, and let's not take it from the context. He's thinking of other people when he's writing this, right? So maybe we should think of other people when we put on a damn mask. Like, right, right, right. <laughs> it's right, not. Right, let's right. not just grab one. And it, yeah, sure. Right. right. Well, yeah. I have the right. I have <laughs> go down that rabbit trail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think people that are protesting masks in public schools right now should have big posters that say, "My child has the right to infect your child." Yeah. We should just say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. P.S. Hashtag pro life. Yeah. 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 P.S. <laughs> P.S. Jesus loves you, and so do I. Let's talk. Let's talk about decentering whiteness. Um, sure, sure, sure. Can sure. you make a distinction between? Because uh, I think when uh, when some people hear that, they they uh, equate whiteness with the color of their skin. Could you um, pull those two apart first, and then we'll get to decentering? Yeah, time? yeah. Let, let me just say this: race is a false, but very, very, very. Uh, significant category in how we define ourselves. Uh, Miguel de la Torre in his little book, Reading the Bible from the uh, Margins, says that race is a social political construct designed for the sole purpose of oppression. Mm. So as we begin to talk about race, the first thing I want us to establish is, along with Nell Painter's idea, that race has always been a construct that's been used to define us. And it's a false construct. It's not true. I'm ethnically German. My family comes from Germany. But something about whiteness had an appeal to it where I was able or I was willing and able to relinquish my ethnicity for the sake of a racial construct. So Jennings in his little book, uh, After Whiteness, uh, A Lesson in Belonging, he says this that the definition of whiteness is tied to a, and this is, a, this is an important intersection, right? Um, tied to masculinity um, in a John Wayne-esque. If you haven't read Jesus and John Wayne, you should. Yeah. It's a very good book. But we begin right. to see how these things play off each other. White, male, cisgender is all part of the package. Mm. Um, and it's a part of the package where Jennings defines whiteness as Possession, mastery, and control. Hmm. Possession, mastery, and control of knowledge first, of oneself second, and if possible, one's world. Hmm. Possession, mastery, control. So when I talk about whiteness and I talk about deconstructing it, I'm not saying that Ron Ruthruff um, should not be physically white anymore. What I'm saying is that those constructs that have been racial constructs that have been designed for the sole purpose, according to De La Torre, for oppression, those constructs that actually have attributes of possession, mastery, and control, if we're going to unwrap some of these problems we have that, are, uh, that we see in the protest, we have to begin to engage this idea of why do white people feel like they're always in charge? And I go back to my mask comment again. Yeah. I'm really serious about this. Yeah. I think white, old white men think their mouths are their best feature. I think the whole reason subconsciously is they don't want to cover up their mouths because they feel like they're, they're going to have to be quiet and we've never had to be quiet in our whole life. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So the, um, the decentering aspect is relinquishing that mastery 
what was the three mastery control and possession and possession is that would that be a concise way of saying that yeah and and, and is, is giving that up for can i pick on being, you for just a second yeah please do yeah 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 um, so you were very sweet and you were saying hey how do i decenter my vitals yeah and my argument is you don't okay you can't in fact even that impulse for all of us as white people to say what can i do mm. goes back to possession mastery and control oh shit arthur ash a brilliant social change agent and a pretty good tennis player. Um, Arthur Ashe, probably, I think he won Wimbledon like multiple times. Like, I don't know much about tennis, but I know he was a pretty big freaking deal, right? Um, Arthur Ashe said, do what you can, when you can, where you can. That was his entire uh, strategy of social change. This is a man who had major clout in the community, was a premier tennis player, the athlete at the top of his game. But as a black man, he understood he was limited. And his limitation wasn't threatening to him. It actually shaped his social change strategy. I think one of the problems in decentering whiteness is we think that it's something we can master. Mm. Where I would suggest you can't decenter your whiteness but you can be part of a community. You can submit to a community that will or that can help you decenter yourself for the sake of, of another. It's it's funny when you when you first responded to me there, my knee-jerk reaction, I almost interrupted you, interrupted you, but it was just so telling, was to respond with, so then what do I do? Right, which is perhaps wrapped into the insidious autocorrect, right? That right. that's that's still my whiteness lashing out, and I use that lash um, in in, right. in right. particular um, because I still equate that that that's what what I'm supposed that's that's the purpose of 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 Kyle, a, a, a white cisgender man in America is to to do something right and to take back control of something. Um, yeah, I just think yeah. that's even in my desire to be to to decenter myself. I, my my question of I'm, I'm asking the wrong question. Well, uh, and, and, then, and then no yeah. wonder there's not going to be the right answer. And and, and I want I want to be attentive to where you want to go with this, but this yeah. is where I've been I've been writing a little. I wrote a little uh, blog post for the school. I'm trying to actually, uh, if the school will afford me the opportunity, to give me a little bit more time. I'm trying to write a book on this because I think it's it's. It's important enough to me where I, I need to get my thoughts down. But this is why the actual tools to engage this work almost create a sort of a disassociative psycho, a psychological frame of disassociation among white people. Because the idea that we have possession, mastery, and control mm-hmm. to then enter into this conversation where we feel out of control and we don't have mastery and it isn't a possessive, we can't own it. It 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 creates a fragment or it creates fragments in our personality. It begins to make it very difficult for me to say, how do I step into places where I don't know? How do I step into places where I'm not in possession of the truth and I need other people to help me? Our entire DNA as white men, straight white men the Trinitarian formula of power and privilege, right? 
straight white men have to lean into things that feel um, horribly awkward for us. It's about posture and it's about proximity that many of us don't want to take. Now, I'll tell you when this, the, the, the shit really hits the fan on this stuff. It's all these really, really woke people in our neighborhood. Seattle is progressively like we're so far ahead of everybody else. We've got Black Lives Matter signs in our yards. We shop at PCC. Um, you know, we, you know, we cut up our little uh, Lacroix uh, plastic things before they go in the garbage, so the oceans are saved. Like we got our shit together. I heard someone say Lacroix is what juice tastes like to ghosts. Just want to interject yeah, that. Yeah. Well, I drink uh, Select. I drink Select. Uh, uh, seltzer water. I don't drink. I'm a, I'm a polar guy myself. Well, I drink select because I feel like it's the Lacroix for the people. I'm just saying. <laughs> but 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 uh, but but this is where it hits the fan. When we begin to ask ourselves what schools our kids are going to go to. Mm. Now, Ibram Kendi is right. The desegregation of the black body was a was a was a was a horrible solution to a, a, a problem of. of uh, the, la the healthy redistribution or distribution of resources. Ibram Kendi is right in his critique of moving young black children all around the city. They should have desegregated resources. They shouldn't have desegregated just black bodies. But I will say this, when we start talking about where we send our kids to school, all of a sudden the dynamics change a little bit on how we want to sort of make this fight or or i would even say this where we go to church yeah changes like we don't we don't want to worship with people from different cultural groups because our ways of worship are very different mm -hmm. we don't want to go to school where my kid i mean my wife is a public school teacher my sons are public school teachers educators uh one is a special education uh para educator one is a, a pe teacher you can see in the public school system this insidious autocorrect as well. And you can see how quickly white families scramble for the best, for the right table, for the right Montessori program, for the right preschool program, the right preschool program that will get their kid into the right college. Yeah. We think about the craziness of that. But so this is all over in sort of our idea for possession, mastery, and control. It exemplifies itself in every system we negotiate. Mm -hmm. I think to throw in another factor too, just from my own trying to process this and live this, is um, that consumerism that is embedded in my DNA in the sense that like I see everything as a pie, right? So if, if I let someone else speak more, that means I'll have, I'll speak less. And if I give over my possession, mastery, and control, then that means I'll have less mastery, possession, and control. You know, I see everything as a pie and a, and a, and a, and a zero sum. Um, and, and I don't think that's reality. And, and, and actually, in fact, that doesn't line up with my theology either. Right. I would say, I, I would say, I would say that mm -hmm. there is enough because I'm enough because because I've always been enough. <laughs> right, right. And this goes back to sort of a, a, an anthropological frame of, uh, of scarcity versus abundance, right? Yeah, this idea yeah. that there's not enough resource. And there's not enough resource 
because of colonialism. You know, people like Franz Fanon wrote some really great stuff about the impact of colonialism in Africa and really pushed for a new way of thinking that we should relate to certain. Now, some people can call it socialism, they can call it communism, they can call it whatever they want. But there is a redistribution of resources that would happen without the sort of colonial reach that would have been a very different landscape than what we sit in right now. And I want to get to this place. I don't want to just talk about history because I want to get to a place where this impacts the way we, re we relate to each other. It's not just, racism isn't just interpersonal, but it is deeply relational. And all of those systems represent that power, control, and mastery. And they're being shaped by systemic forces that cause police to police differently in different mm -hmm. neighborhoods. Uh, another quick story, I was uh, walking up to watch a, to go to a, jump on the train and go to the Seahawks game pre-COVID. And there was a man that was naked, completely naked, standing in the uh, train tracks. And so myself and my son and another young man that was there all decided that we were gonna call the aid car. Aid car said it wouldn't come. This man is obviously either mentally ill or possibly could be high. I didn't know I wasn't, I, did, I didn't have a diagnostic manual with me. I just knew he was standing buck ass naked in the middle of the train track. And the ambulance told us very, 911 operator told us very quickly, sorry, in that zip code, we always send the police respond to respond first. We communicated that it was an African-American man in the midst of George Floyd and a whole bunch of other things. Well, this was pre-George Floyd. This was when other black people were being murdered that we forgot their names and now we all remember George Floyd. But communicated, we were very concerned about that, that we understood the police response to young black men in our neighborhood. And regardless, he obviously didn't have a gun because he was naked, uh, but you know, it was scary. And 911 was very clear that in this zip code, they, only, they always send the police first. And the rest of the story is really sad because the police were super streetwise and super smart and educated me on the fact that he was on drugs and didn't, how come I didn't know that? And I'm like, maybe you could have just said, hey, thank you for being a good citizen and helping a guy out of the train track. But um, too many Hawaii Five O episodes or something, these guys were um, pretty serious about their job. So anyway, the point is the police, police, differently now. That is a true dynamic. Hospitals engage <laughs> uh, patients in a different way in our neighborhood. All those things are changed in a neighborhood where uh, you have people of color. It almost as if like, um, I, I recently went through some, some good therapy of um, cognitive behavioral therapy and, and his big thing, I, my big takeaway was just trying to better understand my thought traps so for oh, me, uh, I, right, I, right. one of my go-to thought traps is to make everything personal, even if it was not at all, you know, and then I get offended and uh, become a martyr and lash out. So that's kind of, the, you know, the rhythm and you're talking about like uh, not under, not confronting some of those things before you get married, right? Like right, <laughs> those dynamics right, living right. on your family. Right. But it's, it's almost as if this whiteness is, is just a collection of a, of a, of a hundred different thought traps that, that we're not even aware of, but we're still living out daily you know this um this desire to be in possession and control 
Um, let me let me just add this. I think yeah. all, I think I think yes, yes, yes. Jeff Chang in a great book called Who We Be, and then a follow up book called uh, We Gonna Be All Right. I can't say it the way it needs to be said. It's a Kendrick Lamar line that he uses. Jeff Chang writes a great little book about uh, resegregation called We Gonna Be All Right. It's amazing little book. Um, but in his first book, Who We Be, he says this. Race happens, or excuse me, he says, we can all agree that race is not a question of biology. Instead, it's a question of culture. And it begins with a visual problem. This is the sort of thinking traps you're talking about. Okay. It's one of vision and visuality. Race happens in the gap between appearance and the perception of difference. Race is about what we see, what we think we see, and what we think about when we see it. Mm. What we see, what we think we see, and what we think about when we see it. Our ways of relating systemically, our ways of relating institutionally, our ways of relating interpersonally, and our ways of thinking intrapsychically, all are based on this history that we've been talking about and it really comes down to what Chang is getting at. It's what we see, what we think we see, and what we think about when we see it. Mm -hmm. Shit. Oh, man, I'm still processing that. Hmm. It's humbling, you know? Like, I just, um, I'm getting emotional just um, sitting here in that because I just, uh, it's a long ways to go. Ron, yeah. like, yeah, yeah. I just, um, because, because you're right, that insidious default to just be in control and possession and to do something to solve it. Uh, I, I'm reminded of, um, you know, how I've reframed my sense of advocacy that it's no longer. I used to think advocacy was speaking up for someone, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But that implies somehow that they don't have their mm -hmm. own voice, right? Or, or, or their own ability to speak for themselves. But advocacy now for me is about amplifying um, marginalized voices um, instead. So, and, and yeah, that's- I love that. In my I, second book, uh, in my second book, I say, I don't want to be a voice for the voiceless. So this is yeah. a Ron Ruthrop quote. I, like, I want to be ears for the earless. It ain't yeah. the people that have, don't have voices. I didn't say ain't in my book. Publisher would have caught that. Uh, uh, but but it, is, it is about creating ears for the earless. So my work and your work, no matter how hard it is, is to do our own work around these issues of mastery, control, and possession. Our work, your work and my work, is to begin to be attentive to the thinking errors that we do. And this doesn't, this doesn't come by me naturally. This is about putting yeah. myself in positions where I don't feel like I'm in control. Mm -hmm. This is about being very indebted to a neighborhood like the 98118 that has been a gracious, and this is where I'll get emotional and cry, that has been a gracious teacher to my wife and I. There's a man by the name of Tally Harrison. He's a brilliant, brilliant scholar. He ran a Socratic seminar that my sons were a part of in high school called Urban Roots. 
where they would go with a group of young people every Thursday night and talk for two hours about race and justice and theology. And then they would come to our backyard. I don't know what they were doing back there, smoking hookah or whatever. They'd come to our backyard and they would talk for another two hours because he was a gracious teacher to my sons. My sons look at the world differently because they were raised in this neighborhood. I will always be a guest here by the nature of how and when we moved in here and how old I was, but my sons have been adopted into this community. And so that, that's, but that, that's also very awkward Yeah, because it meant that we submitted to a school system that was in some ways problematic, but knew at the end of the day, knew our kids were going to be fine. We also submitted to grocery stores that didn't have very good produce. And all of those things have begun to change as we see the neighborhood gentrifying. But it is that sense of how do we engage this work over a long period of time? That's the call. The call is to put ourselves in positions where we can begin to pay attention to some of those thinking errors. Um, why do I have to describe my doctor? as Asian? Or why do I have to describe my lawyer as black? Well, because if my attorney is black, it's away from the norm. So I create that adjective to help people understand, oh, guess what? I have a black attorney. Why? Because most of our world believes that only attorneys are white. Why do I say I have an Asian this or a black this sort of in my relational uh, network? Because that feels not normative. I mean, that's how it's so those sort of thinking errors are great because people say to me, Ron, my dear sweet wife, Ron, what did that person being Native American have anything to do with your story? Mm -hmm. Good point. Let, let me tell you how this really comes home. Mm -hmm. you, I'm a big Seahawks fan. Uh, I've got a lot of tattoos, and one of them is a big Seahawk with the Super Bowl, the one Super Bowl win, uh, the, the score tattooed on my arm. So I'm a huge Seahawks fan. Which, which means I have two favorite teams in the world, right? The Seattle Seahawks and whoever's playing the San Francisco 49ers. I hate the 49ers. I would piss on a 49er if he was on fire. Hate him, hate him, hate him, hate him. A few years back, when I was less woke, Colin Kaepernick began to say some things about uh, racial injustice. I didn't really know he was saying anything at the time. I hadn't paid attention because it was the beginning of football season. I was really excited about the Seahawks. So in all of my passion and in all of my, uh, you know, competitiveness, I hear that Colin Kaepernick is um, kneeling next to the bench for the national anthem. Mm -hmm. And I make a Facebook post that says, this is embarrassing. This is not Ron's finest hour, but I make a Facebook post because I don't even know why he's kneeling. I don't even check it out. I didn't even investigate why he was kneeling. Mm -hmm. I just knew he was a 49er. And remember, I, I wouldn't piss on a 49er if they're on fire. And, and so I said, well, it's a good thing that Colin Kaepernick is kneeling next to the bench because that's probably where he's going to spend most of the season anyway because he sucks. Said something like that. Yeah. I was probably a little bit more articulate than that. <laughs> and I have a great friend in this neighborhood uh, they call him the prophet, and he is. And uh, he sent me a really sweet note that said, wow, must be nice to only think about football when a black man is kneeling to pay attention. Mm. 
to a whole bunch of stuff that needs to be corrected in our society. Yeah. That is privilege. Yeah. That is power. The luxury to not have to think about it. Mm-hmm. To be able to afford to only talk shit about football when something far more important is going on. Now, thank God. Well, it my, connects the dots of entertainment exploitation too, right? Of black right, exactly. Yeah. And thank God I have a community that's willing to say, Ron, what the hell? And we go, yeah, you're right. You're right. So, of course, I, I, you know, I repost another post with my friend uh, Derek Wheeler-Smith's co- correction and honored him for his corrective to me because he loves me, because he wants to tell me the truth. I don't know how we can decenter whiteness without being in those relationships. Yeah. I don't know how we can decenter whiteness without being in positions where we're uncomfortable, where we don't have control, where we know we can't fix stuff, um, but we're willing to sit in a community and do it together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and maybe that's at least, I mean, I guess I, I have to at least give myself credit for something to just encourage myself to keep moving forward. And I think if anything, I've, I've created, I, th- I think at least, how can I frame this? I think a good, de- a good default that I have um, cultivated in my life is when I'm confronted with um, a bias or prejudice or um, a micro racial aggression that I, I get curious rather than get offended. And uh, my yeah. default has become one in which I'm like, tell me more. I, Cause I, you might, you might be onto something. Yeah. And I didn't yeah. used to have that. I used to default with my privilege to offense and, or dismissal. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I'm quicker now than I ever was before to apologize. I mean, even last week I, I, I DM'd a friend and, 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 uh, and just let him know that it, it's, it's, it was a year, it's been a year. And I, I finally, reconciled some stuff internally that I was like, you know what? That was ultimately about me as a privileged white guy offended that you got the job over me. And I, wow. and I, I'm sorry it took me this long to figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know <laughs> if you'll ever see it. Cause it's, you know, like the way Facebook DMS work, you know, if you're not yeah. friends, you don't see it because of your message requests and that's fine. And that's not even maybe the point. The point is I just, I'm grateful that that's starting to become a, a default in my life. Well, and that's a good default. And, and what I would say is that, uh, usually we use I'm sorry as you know the, the ability to cover up a multitude of sins rather mm-hmm. than the first step towards reconciliation. Yeah. I'm sorry should be the first step. It shouldn't be the last. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Which means don't talk about it anymore. Mm-hmm. I feel okay. really bad. Dismissal, yeah. yeah, it's like it, it is an act of dismissal. So maybe sorry should be the first step. This, mm, I, I, I want to yeah. share one more quote with you because I think it's really important. Yeah. And this gives us a little bit of grace. Audrey Lord in her great work, Sister Outsider says this, but we have no patterns for relating across human difference as equals. As a result, those differences have been misnamed and misused in the service of separation and confusion. Audre Lorde, Sister Outsider, page 115. It's one of my favorite quotes because what it tells me is it all, it tells me a little bit about my history. As a result, these differences have been misnamed and misused in the service of separation and confusion. But the first part of that gives me an opportunity to say, we don't know, we don't have control, and we've never had a way of relating across human differences equals, but you know what? 
when you talk to Medgar Evers' uh, uh, widow, when you talk to people in the movement, when you even listen to the podcast of Tenahasi Coates, you hear a, a, a significant hope in their voice for who is gathering at those protests. We are now in a moment where if we continue to push, we can begin, if we listen well, this is what teacher Bonhoeffer said, right? In his book, Life Together. If we listen, we have to listen with the ears of God to speak the word of God. That's how we as white people are going to get to a place where we can begin to imagine what it would be like to engage human difference as equals, listening well. And I think I have hope because I think I saw last summer in those protests some deep listening and attentiveness to what we need to do uh, as a community when we gather together. So that feels hopeful to me. Well, and it's interesting too that the Black Lives Matter movement, as, as much as I've understood it, is it's it's only request it's it's primary request of of someone like me is solidarity, which has nothing to do with mastery, possession, or control. <laughs> right. It means right. just like shut your mouth and stand with them. Right. Um, right. And that's right. what I'm trying to get better at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's good. I hope. I yeah. hope. I hope that's good. Ron, thanks a lot for your time. This was awesome, and it, it's going to haunt me in the best kind of Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost kind of way. <laughs> I mean that. Like, I, I, uh, I'm excited to think about this a lot more and play it back. And, um, yeah, it means the world to me. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. You know, um, I, uh, I used to uh, guest lecture at a lot of churches, um, and the more I talked about race, the less they wanted me to come, <laughs> uh, which is really interesting. It was, it was truly the only thing that disqualified me um, from being a pretty good Pentecostal preacher. Uh, so I, uh, I find this to be a, a, I love this format. I love you. I love that we have history together. I love, I'll say this about you. I love that you have chosen to walk away from institutions um, because you needed to and because it was the right thing to do regardless of the implications. So thank you for modeling that for me. Thank you for being a good example of what it means to lose something um, for the sake of justice. listening to the Not Quite Compassion podcast. It'd mean the world to me if you took the time to rate uh, and review, leave a little comment on iTunes or Spotify about the podcast. Tell us what you like about it. And it really helps with the ranking of it and for more people to be able to find it. Um, also, if you have any questions about the podcast or suggestion or something, um, go ahead and just email me. It's uh, kyledeanreynolds at gmail.com. Simple as that. So K-Y-L-E-D-E-A-N-R-E-Y n-o-l-d-s kyle dean reynolds at gmail.com uh, or you can always reach out to me on the socials uh, at, at kyle reynolds on twitter thanks mm-hmm.